Today's scripture reading is 1 Chronicles 29, 9 through 16, and 20 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then the people rejoiced because of their leader's willingness to give, for they had given to the Lord wholeheartedly. King David also rejoiced greatly. Then David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, May be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty, for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. For we are aliens and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this wealth that we've provided for for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. Then David said to the whole assembly, Blessed be the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They knelt low and paid homage to the Lord and the king. The following day, they offered sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, along with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. Then for a second time, they made David's son Solomon king. They anointed him as the Lord's ruler and Zadok as the priest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Timothy Jones. I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Community Church Midtown. Well, about 10 years ago, a new phrase entered the American vocabulary, and that phrase was a bucket list. Now, you remember that there's about 10 years ago, a movie, I had to look up who starred in it, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, and it's two dying men, and these two dying men make a list of all the things that they want to do before they kick the bucket. And so they make this list and try to do all the things that they wanted to do before they die. Now, that may be a new terminology, but it's not a new idea. The fact is, every single one of us at least has some sort of something we yearn for, something we long for, something that if only I can do that before I die. I just want to do that before I die. But now here's the problem with most bucket lists. Most of them have an idea is if only I get that or only I do that, then I'll be satisfied. Then it'll all be good. I'll be ready to die at that point if I just get that one thing. Now, David had a bucket list. And in this chapter, death is drawing near for David. This is David's last public address before the people of Israel. But David had only one item on his bucket list, and it was a different kind than most of us have. Because rather than being closed-handed in something that wanted something for himself, David's desire was to do something for God and for his people, and yet God tells him no. He tells him no. And here was David's one item on his bucket list. It's in First Chronicles chapter 28, the chapter before the one we read. He said, it was in my heart to build a resting place 
for the ark. I had one item on my bucket list. I wanted to build a place for God's ark to be placed. And through this hope that David never fulfilled in his lifetime, we start to see something important. We see how to live and to die with open hands. But to understand David's yearning, we first have to understand this ark, okay? This ark. See, other nations in their world at that time, their gods were kind of represented to them by statues or by idols. So you might have a vast and beautiful statue of a particular deity in a temple, and that was how they represented their gods. But the problem is, is that the God of Israel told them, I can never be represented in any sort of image. I am never to be represented by any sort of image. I am too great, too wonderful. I am free. God is a wild and untamed God, we might say. You will not represent me, he says, in any image. And so what they have instead of a statue in a temple is a golden box. The box. It has the Ten Commandments inside it, and it sort of functioned like a throne, we might say, with no one on it. That is to say, it's an expression of the truth that you cannot make an image of God, and so you have this box that was kind of referred to as a throne in such a way that it was a representation of the fact that they could make nothing to represent their God. Because you see, Israel They worshiped a God who was not limited to any location. They worshiped a God who was present in every place. He was not bound to any box or bound to any building. He's a God who reigns and who rules, who is wild and untamed, and he does what he pleases. And he wanted them to know that. And so he didn't want them to treat the land, he treat the ark as if it were some sort of a magic thing, like a, a lamp of a genie that you rub and something pops out of it. You get three wishes. He didn't want him to treat it that way. So he told him, don't touch it. Don't touch the ark. Don't mess with it. And yet the Israelites, despite all of his warnings to them, they got the idea at times, I think they'd watched Indiana Jones one too many times, that God's power was inside the box. And so they would do things like take it into battle as sort of this uh, magic charm in battle to make sure they won. And in fact, one time, God let the Philistines steal the ark because they were using it that way. And you know what? It didn't kill the Philistines that stole it. And so the Israelites were wondering, what happened? What happened was, is God was reminding them, I don't live inside that box. I don't live in there. Now, ever since the time of Moses, this ark of God's covenant had resided in a tent or a tabernacle. It was a nice tent, but it was a tent. And it moved about with the Israelites. They moved around. They moved it around to different places. And that was a reminder that the God of Israel was not one who was limited to any particular location. He was free to move about as he pleased. But David, once he was solidified in his kingdom, David said, I want God to have a house that is at least as great as my own house. I want to have a great house for a great God. I want to have the space in which there's a resting place for God's covenant. See, other rulers, they left monuments to themselves and their victories, and David could have done that. He had many. But instead, he wanted to leave a monument to his God. But God is not impressed. He says, no, David, you are a man with blood on your hands. Your son, he'll build a temple, but you're not going to. So here David stands here at the end of his life, 
This is his last public address before the people of Israel, and he is a dying man. The hair that comes from beneath his crown is white. The skin that was ruddy in his youth is now like leather. And he stands before the people. 40 years he has ruled them, and everybody that can gather there gathers. The wealthy, the poor, the slaves, the free. It's his last time he will address them. This man, this king, who has failed and yet forgiven, who is broken and yet beloved, with a bucket list that he will never see completed in his lifetime because he's more concerned with being faithful to God than with fulfilling his dreams. And what we see in David is how to die well, how to die with open hands. You see, his predecessor, Saul, his predecessor had died with clenched fists, we might say, trying to hold on to his kingship and even killing anybody who might be a rival. But David, David dies with open hands that pointed toward a king who is yet to come. And I want us at Sojourn, I want us to be people who live and die with open hands. Now, during this final address, David does what is unthinkable. What he does earlier in this chapter is he says, I have my own treasures of gold and silver, and I give it for the house of my God. Do you see what David was saying in that? David literally emptied out his entire treasury, his entire storehouse, and gave it for the sake of this temple. He doesn't leave his treasure to his children. He gives it all to the temple of God, approximately in our terms, $5 billion for the temple. Now, in other nations, the king's treasure, and in their time, a king's treasure was used for two purposes. You either used it to impress other kings when they came to visit, or you used it to suppress the threats of other kings by paying off other kings that were coming after you. So when he gives up his entire royal treasury, he is entrusting his legacy, his status, his security, not to his wealth, but to his God. So how did the people respond? They did not say, David gave plenty, we don't need to give anything. He gave it all. No, the people respond by being so generous that they actually end up giving all together more than David himself had given. And it says they rejoiced because they had given freely with a whole heart. And when David sees that, he doesn't say, wow, look what I started. I started this. This was amazing. I started it by emptying my treasury. And look at what they did in response to that. No. David responds with humility and gratitude, a prayer of humility and gratitude. And the first half of that prayer talks about who God is. And it is filled with phrases that are borrowed from the Psalms. Now, these are familiar words in the first half of that prayer that the people knew and sang and prayed together. Blessed are you, God, forever and ever. Yours is the greatness and the glory. Heaven and earth are yours. All of these are phrases they're familiar with. It's the phrases that David is expected to say as part of a prayer. The prayer doesn't get personal until verse 14. But I want to pause for a moment and recognize something very important about this prayer. You see, you may notice that when we gather to worship together week by week, we often say the same words over and over and over, don't we? We tell the same stories over and over and over. And there may be times when you are going through a spiritual dry season in your life and you think, why 
am I saying these words over and over when I really don't feel it at all? But I want you to understand that the words you are simply repeating now are shaping your soul in ways that you don't know for the time when you feel it again. To be honest with you, there have been times when I've gone weeks or months and I have prayed it, I have sang it, I have said it, I have even preached it and never felt it. And there will be times in your life that you go weeks and months and years that you will keep singing it and saying it and praying it and yet you never feel it in your heart. But here's what happens that I've seen over and over in my my own life and in the lives of others. Then there's that time when somebody gives a testimony and something just breaks through. Or there's a line in a song that just triggers something and it all floods together and you realize that God was there all along. You read that scripture and it opens up all new. And here's what you realize. The words you sang and said during the months of darkness were shaping you in ways that you never knew at the time. You didn't know it, but it was. I want you to understand that sometimes we pray the truth because we believe it. Other times we pray the truth until we believe it. Sometimes we sing the truth because we mean it. Other times we sing the truth until we mean it. And sometimes we speak the truth because we feel it. And other times we keep speaking the truth until we feel it. That's what, how it works in our lives. And the familiar phrases in the first half of David's prayer, those were preparation for the intimate and personal words that we read in the second half of David's prayer. And that's where David says before the people, he says, who am I and who are these people? This is not a moment of amnesia where David is saying, who am I? I don't know why. Why are all these people here? I don't know what's happening. That's not what's happening here. David is saying, who am I and who are these people as a recognition of grace? He recognizes that the generosity he has seen around him is a privilege that was possible only because of what God had already given to them. And in essence, he says, who are we to give you, God, what was already yours to begin with? Who are we to give you, God, what was already yours to begin with? And then he says, we are refugees and temporary residents. Some of your translations may have sojourners and strangers at that point. He's saying, we're immigrants from another land, but if you know the text, you ought to pause and scratch your head at that moment because you recognize that at this time, they are not immigrants from another land. In fact, they are at the most settled point in all of their history. They have been in their land for hundreds of years, and yet David says, we are sojourners and strangers. Well, remember, Israel began as a people with no land. They were immigrants. They were enslaved, and God rescued them. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, particularly in in the first five books of the law, It's repeated over and over that in response to the fact that God rescued you who are vulnerable and weak and broken, God rescued you from slavery. Therefore, you treat the vulnerable and the oppressed with compassion and justice. It is repeated over and over. The widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. Care for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, or sojourner. 
In essence, what he was saying is, don't forget, Israel, where you started and stand with those who are vulnerable. You didn't bring yourself to this land in your own power. God brought you here. And always stand with those who were like you were. But then he makes the point even more in the next phrase after that. In the end, no matter how settled we may be or strong we may seem, we are all sojourners and strangers. He says, our days on earth are like a shadow. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, even we are settled, even if we are strong in this land, we're still just here temporarily because death eventually comes and takes us all. Life is short and time and death turns us all into temporary residents of this planet. I wanna focus for a little bit on this idea of sojourners just for a moment. Because this idea of being a sojourner, that's part of who we are in this church. That's part of our name is Sojourn Community Church. 17 years ago, there's a group of people got, gathered just off Bardstown Road, a small group of people. And a song that was, that was listened to and, and that some people kind of, it kind of touched them was a song by a man named Rich Mullins called Land of My Sojourn. He says, I will sing this song, I will sing this song in the land of my sojourn. And that became the name of this place, Sojourn Community Church. And a sojourner is someone who seeks the good of the place where they live, even though their heart is somewhere else. And what the word sojourn calls us to do is to live here and love it here and seek the flourishing of this place, but to recognize because we are all sojourners in this world, we are to stand in this place with the vulnerable and the weak because ultimately we're all sojourners. We're all just temporarily here in the land of our sojourn. And when we recognize that, we can be generous with our time, generous with our resources, generous in standing with the vulnerable and broken because our security isn't found in what we get here. Our final destination and our security is with God and he is our home. Our ultimate values and allegiance, if we're a sojourner, they don't belong to any party or nation or place in this world. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God and for us. That's entwined in our very name of who we are at Sojourn. Some of you have been here the entire 17 years that this place has been around. Some of you, you may have been here a few minutes, literally. This may be your first time. Been here about a decade as part of this story. But it's a good story, the story of being sojourners in this place. Well, the day after David's address, there are sacrifices offered for all Israel. This is my favorite part of the text. Because all of these sacrifices are offered and it says that all the people, even the king, eat together. Think of this. In other nations around Israel, the king was considered many of the, many of the times to be something like a god. And yet in Israel, yes, a king reigned, yes, a king ruled, but a king was also a brother to the people. And the people are invited to eat, in essence, at the king's table. The royalty, the ragamuffins, the rich, the poor, they all gather with their king and they all eat 
until they're full. And you think you had an epic barbecue that time when 50 people showed up in your backyard? This is a thousand cattle, a thousand goats, a thousand sheep, apparently no vegetables, thank you, Jesus. And they ate and drank with joy before the Lord's face. That it was, there's a clear sense of God's blessing and favor. Look at this, this is beautiful. The king gives all he has. The people lack nothing. They eat at the table of their king with the favor of their God. The hungry are filled. The poor have plenty. It's almost like a new start in Israel with everybody together again. It's beautiful, but it doesn't last because not even our greatest gifts can save us from ourselves. David's son Solomon, yeah, he built a temple, but he was not a man who lived with an open hand. He tried to rule as a sovereign instead of as a sojourner. He made slaves of the nations around Israel and before it was over, made slaves of his own countrymen. He married 700 women, turned away from God, turned to idols. After Solomon was dead, the kingdom broke into two. That's the outcome of this. And look, at if any human being could set the world right, it was David. Think of David. David was a mighty warrior. He was a popular musician. He was a philanthropist. He was like Captain America, King Arthur, and Bono all together. That was David. If you believe Michelangelo, he had a perfect physique too. And what kind of guy 3,000 years after this happens, he can parade through the streets of Louisville wearing nothing but gold paint and a slingshot. That's some guy right there. That is an amazing guy, David, how he inspires our imagination. But this generosity of David, it wasn't enough because it pointed to a greater generosity that was yet to come. And that greater generosity that was yet to come, David emptied all of his treasury for the sake of a temple But there would come a time when God the Father would empty the heavens of what was most precious to him, God the Son. And he would be joined with the flesh and born of Mary. And this later greater son of David would gather sinners to eat with him at his table. And he would declare himself, Jesus would, to be God's temple in human flesh, the place where people encountered God. And though he was a king, he lived as a sojourner. He had no place of his own even to lay his head, and yet he fed the people. He provided all they needed, and on the night that he died, what did that greater, later son of David do? He gathered at a table, and he ate with his people, and he shared a meal, and there he was, their God and their king, and yet their brother. And he went from that place and gave his all for the sake of his people and died quite literally with open hands. David died. He decayed. But Jesus Christ checked out of the grave alive and well. And all who trust in him become part of his temple, the place where God's presence dwells. That's what we are who trust in Jesus Christ. We are together the temple of God. And so little did David know that the temple he dreamed about, where people would be cared for and taught and who would pursue justice and know their God, that temple was not a place, but a people. We, the church, this crazy collection of sojourners and strangers, we are the fulfillment 
of David's dream. If you're in Christ, you're that one item on David's bucket list that he never got to build, but God built for him. He thought it was a building he wanted. He thought it was a building his heart longed for. Ultimately, it was you. And God yearns for those he has purchased to join in this temple of flesh and blood and spirit and bone by turning to Jesus and trusting in him. That is the gift and the invitation of the greatest king. And that should produce a greater gratitude in us than anything that David ever dreamed. So so we say not merely, who are we and who are these people? But we say, who am I? Who am I? Who are we? That we have a place on the bucket list of a king. We'll leave you with three things that this means for the way we live our lives day by day. Here's number one. Live as if everything is a gift because it is. Live as if everything is a gift because it is. King David emptied out his entire treasury, and if anybody could say, I earned this, I deserve this, it is mine, it was David. He was the eighth-born son of his father. There's not much inheritance left when you're the eighth-born son. And yet David amassed all of this wealth, billions of dollars in our terms, and yet when he gives it, he doesn't say, look at what I'm giving. He says, we have given you only what comes from your own hand. All of it, oh God, was yours to begin with. Understand this. The, most, the greatest enemy of open-handed generosity is entitlement. Entitlement. Saying, I deserve this. I earned this. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Nobody helped me. I did it. It's mine. And that is the greatest enemy of generosity because it's a denial of the truth that everything good is a gift. Seriously, you realize most of your capacities were wired in you by genes that you never chose. And that even if you had worked all that you've worked, the same amount of effort, with all of the same natural talents, do you really think if you were born HIV positive in the streets of Addis Ababa, you would still be where you're at today? You wouldn't be. It's a gift. It's a gift. And what about that one teacher, that one mentor, that one boss who took a chance on you when they didn't even have to? Why did they do that? It's because God created us in his image with a longing to love our neighbor. And even though that image is mangled and broken in so many ways by sin, even people who don't trust Jesus can do good. And anything good that happened to you came because God created it that way. Because God wired that into humanity in the beginning. Everything is a gift. If you think it's yours, chances are you don't own it. It owns you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And here's what happens when we recognize everything is a gift. You see, the fruit of generosity grows from the root of humility. The fruit of generosity grows from the root of humility. And we have the humility that recognizes everything is a gift 
you're able to give generously. You're able to give generously. As long as you think it's yours, you're gonna hold on to it. But when you recognize it's a gift, you can give it away. You can give it away. And some of you may say, I just don't have anything to give. And that may be true for a handful of you. But I think for most of us, it's not. Do you realize if you made $40 in the past seven days, you're in the top 20% of the world's population and wealth? $40 in the past week, and you're in the top one-fifth of the world. I'm not going to give you an amount that I think you ought to give to God, but I'll give you something that has guided my giving for years. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And I ask myself from time to time, am I giving enough that it pinches? Am I giving enough to pinch? It's not just about money. Money's part of it. It's also being generous with your attention We often think we own our time and it's not a gift. You can tell it because we're trying to do so many things at once. We're talking to somebody, but we're only about 30% engaged because we're doing a half dozen other things. What does that say? My time is mine and I'm not going to give it away. It's true not only with our money, with our time, but it's also true with our privilege. Many of you have the opportunity, you have privilege that allows you to open doors for other people and to be able to place other people in positions they might not have been able to get to on their own. Throughout scripture, privilege and power are always to be leveraged for those that are disadvantaged. If you have privilege, leverage it for those who don't. And I want you to think about What is that one possession, that one position, that one amount in the bank account, you name it, that you think, I just have to have that? Whatever comes to your mind in that, behold your God. Behold your God. And behold that which we need to be willing to release because it's a gift. It's a gift. Secondly, live like you don't belong here. We are sojourners and strangers, and our days are but a shadow, David says. Never forget where you'd be apart from God's grace. And that should evoke in you a compassion for the vulnerable. And if that doesn't quite do it, remember what David says is our days are but a shadow. You may be strong, you may be settled here, but you are only here temporarily. You're only here temporarily in passing, because none of us is strong enough to last forever. This week, we adopted a child, a fourth child, and we're on the way back from Virginia, and we stopped in Charleston, West Virginia. Not a lot there. Um, so I got out in the morning and just was walking up and down some of the streets there, uh, and, and I ran across this statue, this statue, from a guy, I mean, he must be important, he's on a horse in a, in a square, so that, that means you're important, Right? Henry Gassaway Davis, didn't know who he was at all. But as it turns out, when I looked him up, early 20th century, he was known by everybody. He was very wealthy. And yet, now he's just a statue in Charleston. 
And at the bottom of that, the first part of the inscription on the bottom of that says this. He worked as if he were to live forever, but he didn't. He didn't, and neither will you. We seek the good of the place we are precisely because we don't belong to this place. We hope for a kingdom that is yet to come. Tom Petty said, you don't have to live like a refugee, but if you're in Christ, you kind of (laughs) do. You're a refugee from your homeland, and the homeland is God himself. Welcome to the merry-go-round. The last thing I wanna leave you with is the kingdom of God is a merry-go-round. My favorite part of this text is when all these people eat with their king and all the distinctions are broken down between them. And isn't that what we all dream about? The people sharing a table where no one's pushed away because they don't have enough or because of where they come from? Isn't that what we all long for in our hearts? We long for that, don't we? When I think of that image, I think of my favorite poet, Langston Hughes, and and my favorite poem from him. He writes of the time during segregation and Jim Crow, and he says, down south on the train, there's a Jim Crow car. On the bus, we're put in the back. But there ain't no back to a merry-go-round. See what he's saying? So you can't put me back if they're going around and around. And I think that's what we as the kingdom of God, as the church ought to be, is a merry-go-round where the distinction between those who belong front, back, wherever, are broken down and all we do revolves around Christ the King. Because there is no front, there is no back, there is only Jesus. There is no front, no back, only Jesus, only Jesus. I want you to think for a moment of the people, whoever they may be, or the person that you say, I just can't have compassion on that person. Think of how you would set people up from front to back in your life. And then recognize that for all who are in Christ, there is no front, there is no back, there is value for every person. And our goal is to invite everybody else onto the ride with us. That's our goal, is to invite others to center and revolve their life around Jesus Christ. That is, that's our calling. And when we live with open hands, we let go of all those rankings and we eat at the same food at the same table because we have the same Christ who has made us his temple, his people. We rehearse that every week. We rehearse it every week. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And David's meal with his people pointed forward to the meal that we share together today. That's what it points to. A meal in which we celebrate and we rehearse what it means to live with an open hand. In the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And after the meal, he took a cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here at Sojourn, the way we do the Lord's Supper, 
is those in the front half of the room come to the front, those in the back half to the back. We have juice and wine. The wine is marked with twine. Gluten-free communion to my left, your right. And we ask that if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you're invited to this meal. But if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, we ask you not to partake in this meal. That's not because we want to push you back or push you away. It's because we don't want you to participate in the meal and miss the meaning. We want to invite you first to Christ, first and foremost. And so we ask you, we beg you, trust Christ. Turn to him. Then come and talk to one of us. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, just as David invited his people to gather with him to eat, Christ himself invites us to gather together and rehearse this meal that points forward to a meal yet to come with him and back to the meal with his disciples. Let's pray.